0: Everybody. This is Kara Ackerbach on The Sausage of Science. Chris may or may not join us at some point during this interview, uh, but today I am super excited to bring on Dr. Amanda Vale, who is an assistant professor of biological anthropology, the director of the Labor Lab, which is the Laboratory for Behavior, Ontogeny, and Reproduction, and a faculty associate at the Center on Aging and the Life Course all part of Purdue University, and her research broadly examines human birthing and breastfeeding behaviors and outcomes and several epidemiological factors that shape cross-cultural variation in child development. Uh, And she currently has field research projects in Mexico and Peru, and has a new paper out with Karen Kramer and Eric Oterola-Castillo on household conditions that modulate associations between cesarean delivery and childhood growth. So I'm going to go ahead and bring on Dr. Amanda Vale. Hello. That was the fastest, like, onboarding of someone through the system I've ever seen. Really? Yeah. Usually there's this, like, long stretch of can they hear us, can they see us, and back and forth. You just popped up and we're there. Awesome. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Fine. How are you? Well, well, Uh course, is supposed to be here, but knowing him, he got his times mixed up. As you have seen, that is a, a frequent issue with time zones between us. Uh, so until then, it's just going to be me. I feel like <laughs> ever, since you and I have, have talked. Yes, it has. How have you been? How have you managed the chaos that is life? It's okay.
1: I, I don't really know how to answer that. because it's, it's an
0: honest answer because everyone hesitates and we're like, do I really want to be honest and just bring it all down? <laughs> I get it.
1: (laughs) Things are better, though. You know, things have gotten so much better in the last few months. Things have gotten so much easier.
0: Well, that's good to hear. Uh, So first, I guess more officially, welcome to the Sausage of Science, and thank you so much for taking some time out of your day uh, and dealing with our scheduling issues. We really do appreciate it. I'm very happy to be here. And I'm not sure if, you, if you've if you listened to the podcast at all, but we start every single episode the exact same way. And that's to hear a little bit about your journey, how you got interested in anthropology, uh, the, the path that took you there, and then how you, or I guess you'd say why and how you decided to pursue it as a career. So why don't you take us on that journey?
1: Um, well, I grew up in a rural county in Eastern Pennsylvania, and I was always outdoorsy. I was always interested in life sciences and health sciences and learning about other cultures. And then for college, I got a scholarship to the University of New Mexico. So I was a junior studying biology and working in a lab there. When I had an opportunity to join a burgeoning anthropology research project, it was focused on the Chamani people, Hmm. who are indigenous forager farmers in the Bolivian Amazon. And I ended up getting National Science Foundation funding to spend nine months there, studying Chamani parenting and infant feeding practices for my senior honors thesis. Oh, very cool. That's where I got passionate about biological anthropology and indigenous health. And this laid the foundation for my graduate studies and my dissertation research. Um, I spent another two years in Bolivia working on my doctorate researching infant nutrition and growth and immunological development. And I did a two-month stint in Venezuela as well, um, studying Venezuelan pume savanna
0: foragers. Very cool. So take me back a moment. What was that early biology lab work that you were doing since it wasn't anthro? So what was that lab work?
1: I was working in a plant reproductive ecology lab run by a woman named Diane Marshall. Um okay. she's still there. Yeah, it was my first opportunity to work in a lab mm-hmm. and it was a wonderful opportunity. I ended up being there for 2 years and was sad to leave, but mm-hmm. I was ready to try field work.
0: How did the uh, the anthro opportunity come up? Uh like you know, oftentimes there isn't crosstalk between departments. So how did you learn about that anthropology opportunity?
1: I was minoring in anthropology ah, and I was taking okay. a class um, with the director of the program, Hillard Kaplan, mm-hmm. who, who headed the project. And he started talking to the class about it. We started talking and he was looking for someone to go and help collect data. And it just worked out very nicely.
0: Very cool. And it's also interesting that you still ended up studying reproduction, but in a very different organism. Yes. <laughs> so there is this through line. That's really wonderful. Uh, so I, I, I talked to, or mentioned the, the title of the new paper that you have out about the uh, potential or the, the connections between cesarean delivery or C-sections, as most people know them, and childhood growth. And there's this one association that's that's potential, is this link between C-sections and obesity. So could you tell us what that association is and kind of what the state of our knowledge is about that? It is really
1: complicated.
0: I had to think a lot about how to boil it down into
1: something that isn't a paper. But basically, we know that cesarean delivery is evolutionarily novel. And we know that it is often associated with modest... But significant increases in childhood obesity in well controlled population studies. Mm-hmm. And it may occur because of alterations in the maturation of the infant gut microbiome, mm-hmm. which of course is composed of bacterial communities that assist with host digestion and nutrient synthesis and immune protection. However, Epidemiologic associations between cesarean delivery and obesity don't always show up because Mm -hmm. they're multifactorial. And there's maternal and gestational characteristics like obesity and smoking and stress hormones. There's infant care and feeding behaviors, and there's perinatal antibiotics. All of this also affects the infant gut microbiome. And all of this varies by birth mode. So, teasing yeah. out one particular factor has been um, a challenge and a huge debate. But in general, what we know is that vaginal delivery, breastfeeding, and absent or no ant- or minimal antibiotics hmm. lead to normal, healthy gut microbiome assembly. Caesarean delivery, formula feeding, and antibiotics lead to abnormal maturation. And this renders children susceptible to obesity through um, alterations in adiposity and Mm -hmm. energy metabolism. So my team has argued that these epidemiologic associations are limited because they're typically derived from populations in evolutionarily novel environments, Mm. urbanized, Mm -hmm. nutritionally abundant, sanitized, and that this relationship needs to be studied across a broader range of populations and epidemiologic settings because cesarean deliveries are rising everywhere.
0: So I, I guess a follow-up question to that is I, I know some places have started instituting almost a, a microbiome inoculation for C-section babies where they will take a swab of, uh, of mom, usually from vaginal secretions and then swab baby skin. If you Have you seen any data on that? If there are any differences for for babies born from C-sections and then swab versus those not?
1: Yeah, it does create a difference, and the difference does persist. It does create a microbiome that is more similar to a vaginally delivered child, but it never quite gets to where a vaginally delivered child would get. The other thing about that is that uh, people are doing it Outside of controlled conditions, Hmm. which is definitely not recommended because um, this was developed, you know, under a rigorous protocol that is known to be safe. Mm -hmm. um, And we don't want people to accidentally get their babies or themselves sick doing this without those controls in place.
0: Yeah. And so you're you're taking this topic of obesity, and as you said, it's, it's multifactorial. And most people only think of it as multifactorial at the point at which an individual is obese. But as your work shows, there's this whole long developmental process and things that happen before a, a person is born that lead to these big changes uh, later into adulthood. And you, and you brought this up already several times about this epidemic epidemiological transition uh, and how you use this kind of framework all the time. uh, Could you maybe just kind of, for folks who have never heard about this before, what is the epidemiological transition and, and how is it kind of set up as a theoretical framework? Usually
1: when people talk about it, they're talking about a shift from having a lot of infectious diseases to having a lot of chronic diseases as biomedical care becomes available. Of course, we're anthropologists and we have to make everything more complicated. So my work for this paper starts 200,000 years ago with Homo sapiens being nomadic- Can you believe you've been that long, Amanda? You've got such an extensive career, 200,000 years. <laughs> yes, it's quite impressive. So we know that humans uh, were exposed to pathogens. It's part of daily life in most parts of the world, and that humans perhaps got used to them. And we call some of those the old friends. So these mm-hmm. are going to be things like helminths, these are going to be things like saprophytic microorganisms, and they're co-evolved, they're commensal. But then some populations adopted farming in the Holocene. And while those old friends may have remained, other microbial exposures start to change. And some Mm -hmm. farming practices, for example, can increase habitats for disease harboring pests, increase exposure to domestic animals, their diseases, their waste. Um, And there are communities today who are living in very similar situations because they have not actually moved through what we call the second epidemiological transition yet, or they're kind of somewhere in between that second epidemiological transition would be characterized by biomedical healthcare access, Mm. especially things like antibiotics and vaccines to keep you safe from all the really, really bad microbes, um, but also implementation of sanitary infrastructure. And this is really where my paper focuses in, is that you often cannot pinpoint this particular transition in rural communities, in poorer regions of the world, because these kind of pieces of the transition might come at different times. They might come and go away. They might not come at all. And it's really common to get some access to healthcare, like antibiotics, but often have no real changes in public health infrastructure, and houses Mm -hmm. are staying the same. And the example I put in my paper is highly medicalized birthing practices, which have become common among a lot of rural women in Latin America, even though they're going home to very rural villages that probably don't have running water, don't have flushing toilets, um, probably Mm -hmm. flood. So this would be an example of kind of a mix of being at a strange place in that transition.
0: So then let's talk about one of the communities that you work with in particular, which are the Yucatec Maya. And so you work with this, this population and I'm gonna, let's just start there. Tell us about this population and how you got involved with them. I started in 2011
1: and I joined a project that had already been operating since 1992. And it's the Yucatec Maya Longitudinal Life History Project founded by Karen Kramer, who's a professor of anthropology at the University of Utah. And she's assisted by her husband, Russell Greaves, who's a brilliant ethnoarchaeologist and a polyglot. Um, So they've worked there for 25 years on research focused on things like childhood, cooperation, female energetics, and fertility, and the emergence of inequality is something they're studying now that's new. So I came along as Karen's postdoc in 2011, and I very quickly got interested in the birth question Mm. just from having conversations with different women. It wasn't something that was a big part of my dissertation research and all the Chimani women in Bolivia birthed at home. But I realized that the Maya women were leaving the community to birth, and I found that to be pretty fascinating. So that kind of opened the door for the rest of this research.
0: Yeah, so now connect the dots for us and 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 tell us how you are working within this the the epidemiological transition framework and what hypotheses you were testing among the Yucatec. The hypotheses, I had to write them out so that I them. <laughs> I mean, like once it's published you just forget it all, believe me, I get it. <laughs> so the first one was
1: that understudied factors like household infrastructure and epidemiologic conditions would modulate the association between cesarean delivery and childhood growth. And the second one was that household conditions would be a much stronger predictor compared to birth mode. And these household conditions are something that we often take for granted when we live in sanitized settings, they mm-hmm. don't often make their
0: way into the models. So then, right? Tell us what you actually, what kind of data you collected amongst these folks to to, to test the epidemiological transition hypotheses that you're working with. Then,
1: so this draws on a longitudinal data set, and I might get the years off a little bit. I think it's 2007 <laughs> to 14. Um, there's different versions of it. It was a data set where children's growth was measured monthly. Mm -hmm. At a clinic by um, a health promoter who works there in the clinic. Um, This was part of a poverty alleviation program. We got access to that data and have used it to model children's growth. We usually end up with around 106 children that were documented for that period, which is not a huge sample in the context of biomedical literature. For anthro, it's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So... Um, That's where the data come from, the demographic information, the contextual information was all collected by us. We go into the community, well, at least pre-pandemic. We went to the community for at least a month, sometimes two every year and got caught up on all the demographic changes, did different types of investigations and interviews and sometimes Mm. behavioral observations. I always went to meet the new babies. So that's where a lot of that contextual data comes from.
0: What did you find? Now connect all, like I've been saying, connecting dots a lot, but let's do that. Let's connect all the dots. So what's happening among the Yucatec and how is it changing delivery methods and child birth weight and what actually is maybe altering those things?
1: There's a whole lot that's been going on there since 1992. The most general is that when Karen started her work, there was no paved road into the community Mm. and there was no vehicles. People had no access to healthcare. In 1997, they put in a health post, which was sporadically staffed. Mm -hmm. And then in 2005, electricity came to the community. The population increased from, uh, I think it was about 316 to over 500. So there was some major population growth. One of the big changes that's going to happen is that in 1992, all the births occurred under midwives. Births were at home. And then once the health post was built, a lot of other things started to change. Many families were enrolled in Opportunidades, which was a government program, a poverty alleviation program, cash transfers. And they were also often enrolled in public health insurance. So all of this provided prenatal care, hospital births at little or no cost. So many women started to travel in the hospitals. And by 2015, 85% of births were in a government facility. So about uh, the rest were still in the village. Mm -hmm. Um, But 30% of those in the health facilities were by cesarean.
0: Okay. Um, wait, so wait, 30%, you said? Yes. 30%. So give people, yeah, give people. And then if I'm not mistaken, Brazil has one of the highest cesarean sections. Yes. Uh, Brazil is higher. Uh, Dominican Republic is higher.
1: Mexico is up there. It got up to very close, I think to 50%, but it started to go back down a little bit.
0: Mm -hmm. And so what impact is this having on birth weight? What's happening now? with this change to, to more cesarean and giving birth in hospitals? None of my research has shown any differences in birth weight. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: there are actually very little differences at birth between the babies who were born by cesarean and the babies who were born vaginally, mm-hmm. but they start to become more different as you follow them across their growth trajectories. Mm-hmm. So this is the other piece of the puzzle. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, then tell us more about that. Like, What's the big take-home message? What do you want people to really get from this change that's going on? What's happening is that
1: children who are born by cesarean are being born the same size over time by five years of age. They're fatter than children Hmm. who were born vaginally. Not a lot. They're not obese. There's no Mm -hmm. obese children in this community. They're not that far along in the nutritional Mm -hmm. epidemiologic transitions. However, my research here contributed an interaction effect, which is going to be certain characteristics of the household. Mm -hmm. And the houses since 1992 have changed Mm -hmm. from non-commercial materials. So earth floors, Mm -hmm. palm thatched roofs, wattle dub, walls, open defecation, and um, water obtained from a well. Now, some people are still living under those exact same circumstances, but others have begun to adopt more modernized housing materials. Mm -hmm. So some people have started to adopt things like cement um, for their housing materials, corrugated zinc roofs. Um, People have water available in their houses now. People are dealing with a trash problem that didn't exist before because they didn't mm. buy commercial goods before. So there's food wrappers and soda yeah. cans and plastic bottles and things like that. So I constructed an index of characteristics that were household characteristics that were associated with children's growth. And the characteristics that turned out to be associated with child growth, one of them is burning trash, here they are, Mm. having a latrine or a septic tank,
0: so Mm -hmm. as opposed
1: to open defecation, having a concrete roof and having a concrete floor, and burning trash. So those were Mm. the four variables that I found in the household that were associated with greater gains in children's growth.
0: Okay, so... When you say children's growth, I assume you're just meaning about height. Is there an impact on weight that you're seeing that's independent of just larger skeletal body size? Yes. We
1: modeled height, we modeled weight, and we modeled BMI. Mm -hmm. Um, And the variables that we selected had a positive association with at least two of them, Mm -hmm. most with three. And these are the variables that we use to create an index Mm -hmm. of household modification that we found to be associated with growth.
0: Okay. So you had already qualified and said that people in this community do not have obesity or the children do not have obesity. However, when when you talk to this community and you, you tell them about these changes that you're seeing, is there concern in the community that this could, you know, become a snowball effect and get out of hand? Or what are their thoughts on this? Definitely concerned. And there's no childhood obesity,
1: but Mm -hmm. obesity is increasing in adults. People are getting diabetes diagnoses. There's an acknowledgement that this is something that's very hard to treat. Um, So people are interested in learning about any kind of interventions Mm -hmm. that can perhaps be uh, preventative.
0: Fascinating. Well, it's really interesting. And Super important work, obviously, that, like you said, is incredibly difficult work, too, because of how multifactorial it all is. What are your plans moving forward with this project or related projects in this community or different communities?
1: With this community, I'm going back next week for the first oh, wow. time.
0: <laughs> like, like right away. <laughs> yeah,
1: just for a week. I, mm-hmm. I only have fall break, uh, unfortunately. And I'm going to start restart collecting microbiome samples, mm-hmm. which I was doing before the pandemic started and had to stop. I also have a new project in Peru, which is on urbanization and migration and indigenous health. Um, and that's something that I'm working on with Eric Ortega castillo who was one of the authors on this paper, professor at Purdue, who also happens to be my husband. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we've been working on.
0: What are the, the big goals of that project, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a preview since it's new?
1: We collected data on about 200 women. And the first models are going to investigate different dimensions of migration, mm-hmm. so duration of migration, um, number of migrations, migration as an adult versus migration as a child, and how they're
0: associated with women's metabolic health at oh, the time that's of cool. data collection. Awesome. And how, like, what sort of, how, what length is this project? Multi-year? Are you trying to get? Okay. That was our cross-sectional data collection. Um, That was
1: our first round of data collection there. Mm -hmm. And we're right in the middle of the analysis now. So that's going to guide the next step and the type of funding that we're going to look for in the next step.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you, we can get you both back onto this show. So when you have those results analyzed, so we can hear... What's coming of that? Because that also seems like an incredibly important bit of research as global migration continues to increase, especially in the face of climate change. It's a, it's a really big deal. And COVID. Uh, and COVID, yeah. Uh, uh, but also, I'm, I'm heading to Finland over my fall break. So I know this, like, cram things into one week and then come right back to it. Uh, so I... I feel uh, for that. So uh, as we start wrapping things up here, we like to end the the, the interview kind of the same way uh, every time, just like we start it the same way every time. And that's getting to know a little bit about you and the not necessarily academic side, but what sorts of things you read, watch, or listen to for fun or hobbies, things that kind of complete you as a whole person.
1: Well, Eric and I have two kids, so we, of course, spend a lot of time with them. And in my free time, which is rare, um, (laughs) I like hiking, horseback Mm -hmm. riding, and looking for new salsas, extra spicy salsas, if you have any recommendations.
0: What is your, like, highest Scoville scale pepper that you have consumed or salsa you have consumed?
1: I've never actually measured them, but the salsa that is my favorite is Sadie's from New Mexico, Mm -hmm. um, which is now available on Amazon. I used to have to have it
0: shipped, but that's... The hottest one I found so far. How do you manage it? Are you someone who has a glass of milk sitting there ready for you? Sometimes cheese. Cheese. Um, okay.
1: Yeah, but it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't have that much of an effect on me. <laughs>
0: That's how you just eat all the hot stuff, and it doesn't matter. I love it. Oh, that sounds like fun. We have through this podcast, we have learned a lot of people meat smoke meats like a mm. lot of barbecue fanatics and you might be the first salsa one but i feel like a salsa <laughs> competition and a meat smoking competition should be at a conference one of these years awesome and you would you would burn everybody's mouth off so maybe <laughs> you shouldn't <laughs> go into that maybe not the new mexicans are
1: are pretty impressive mm.
0: Okay, yeah, well, it's good to know. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on to the Sausages of Science today. If anyone wants to get a hold of you and learn more about you and your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, they can look up my
1: website. They can send me an email, a v like victor, e i l e, at purdue.edu. And that would probably be the best way.
0: Well, again, thank you so much. Um, I'm Kara Akabak, and you can find me at Kara Akebak on Twitter. And this has been the As of Science. Amanda, you do some really awesome work, and we'll have to have you back on once you get some of the uh, that migration data analyzed. That'll be really cool to hear about. Thank you. I appreciate it.